and um, I said, yeah, nigga. I know all them, why them producers are in there now. Dr. Drayden left, and I told you, motherfucker. I said, I told you, motherfucker. Don't never let Dr. Dre go. And I looked at Easy, and I looked at Jerry, looked at Gary, looked at the twins, the Samoan the security of Easy, and say, this is going to be the worst mistake this label have ever, ever made. Now you guys are just a regular record company. Nothing special about you. Nothing. Trust me, nothing. I don't know what it was that happened between y'all, but you should have made it right. You should have gave the man his money. The motherfuckers, the Michael Jordan, are promoting, I mean, are producing. Fuck out of here. Fuck out of here. Where the fuck with this label, man? One for Dre. I don't give a fuck if he fucked off all the money in the world where you give him some more. And then you're helping him get a money manager or something. I don't know. I don't know what happened. So this is what I'm going to do. I just got the records that y'all know a couple hours ago. A man of, of, of my word, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. All right? And I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to promote y'all shit. I'm going to finish promoting y'all stuff. Then I quit. I'm rolling with Dre. your boy first with the B to talk radio and I got my partner in crime Big Diesel. Diesel, what's going on? Hey, what's up, man? And I got my homegirl Danky. Danky, where you at? What it do right here? All right, Hip Hop Heads, we have a special guest today. He was a prominent music promoter on the West Coast scene. He promoted many, many albums, but most notably for Ruthless and Duff Folk Records. He was behind the scenes at all the important moments of hip-hop, and he's here today to share his stories and experiences in the industry. So hip-hop heads, let's give it up for the Honorable Doug Young. What's going on, Doug? Hey, hey, hey. How you guys doing, man? I'm in. I'm in the house. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so uh, getting off into it, man. Uh, what part of California are you from, and uh, what made you want to get into music? Well, um, uh, from San Francisco, um, 1962 to 79, the last of the 70s. Uh, then went to uh, San Jose State. <laughs> Graduated there in 83. Um, and as we all know, you don't want to go backwards. So I didn't want to go home, so I decided to um, move to Los Angeles. Um, late 83. Came out south. Came, you know, came down south, as they would say, up here in Cali. And um, just kind of Stumbled into the business, really. Um, childhood friend of mine, Giorgio, um, um, who was also an artist on Motown. He had a little quick single hit, uh, Sex Appeal. People may remember it. Kind of looked like Prince. And um, when I got to Los Angeles, he was in the mix. Um, he knew DeBarge, Rick James and them, um, knew everybody. He was hanging out with Vanity. Um, 
And, um, you know, he was doing his thing. At first I thought he wasn't telling me the truth when he would call me. Because I was um, in my senior year of school. I got into a car accident, so I was kind of, I got hit by a drunk driver and flipped three times in my BMW. I thought he was lying, you know. So when I got out here the first week, um, I was here. Well, first of all, let me back up. I was staying in um, um, Laverne. So that first week I was out there with my, who would be my wife, uh, Eleanor. I was staying with her parents. We are staying there. Um, and then that first week um, mm-hmm. I came up to the city, he told me to come up. He was going to be in a, a studio session. Rick James was going to be there. Bobby DeBarge was going to be there. And Tommy DeBarge to play uh, the bass for him. So I'm like, yeah, right to myself. But anyway, I wanted to get out of the house. So I drove up and sure enough, Rick James was in the studio next door, and Bobby DeBarge was in there, and Tommy DeBarge was in there, and Cliff Selman was the um, was the engineer. Uh, I forget what it was called, uh, but it was in the valley uh, off of uh, Riverside, and I forget the name of that other street. But that's how it all started. See, you, you was mostly known for promoting for Ruthless and Death Row, but you promoted for a whole lot of artists and many different labels. Exactly. Who who all did you promote for? Man, it'd be easier to say who I didn't promote for because, you know, you guys say West Coast, but that's, uh, that's very true, but not necessarily true. Meaning, when I got into the business, this is what happened. Um, ended up getting, helping Giorgio get a really big uh, record deal at Motown which at that time, Maury Alexander, Gary Heller, and uh, Russ Regan, who was the president of Motown at that time, did the deal. So that's how I met Gary Heller. So Giorgio ended up not really, I think, you know, compensating me, Lionel, and Jeff. Lionel right now is the guy who became the head of promotion for Bad Boy and Arista Records, but I brought him into the business with me to help me with Giorgio promoting Sex Appeal. And Jeff House was Giorgio's first cousin. So that's how we started promoting records. We really started with a dance song. So when Giorgio didn't pay us, I had just had my first daughter, uh, Erica, and, um, you know, I had to go get a job, you know. You know, couldn't be just not having a job. You have a kid, right? So... I went back down to McCola and asked Don McMillan, who was the owner of McCola, um, can I do some promotion for him? He said, sure. He couldn't believe that Giorgio didn't pay us. Um, so he let me um, promote whatever record I wanted at McCola. Now, you got to remember, at that time, McCola Record was the hub for rap music because um, the labels really wasn't messing with it at that time. So what he did, he said, go back there because we used to have we used to press right there on the on the site on um, El Centro in Santa Monica at McCola Records. And he said, pick out anyone you want to promote, and I'm going to pay you, uh, what, was, what was my fee? My fee was $3,500, three-week minimal, meaning you had to at least pay me for three weeks. So I ended up picking out, um, we had Techno Hop, which was King T. Ice T and a uh, DJ Battery Brain. Okay, so I picked out I picked all of their stuff. Um, 
I, I mean, King T had the coolest, which was the one I liked the most. And then it was a new group. They was pressing their records called T, uh, Atrium Gregory's label, which was TNT Records with a group called Digital Underground. And the name of the song was Underwater Rhyme. So I'm, I'm listening to all this stuff. He gave me my own office. I, I had my own uh, turntable in there with headphones where I can listen to the records. So I picked out that stuff. I picked out, of course, Egyptian Lover because he was already a hot artist, but I would I picked his stuff. I picked this group named Rodney O and Joe Cooley. I really liked their stuff. You know, they had this record that was about to come out called uh, Everlasting Bass, you know. Um, and that's how we went from there. Oh, yeah, then I picked out, of course, um, Lonzo and the Wrecking Crew. Um, they had an album called The Juice. That's Dr. Dre, Yella. And all of those guys, you know, my, my fraternity brother also, clientele was in there. So I did that. And then later on, Michelle A would come over and do the last single that I did uh, for them. So so I'm making things happen. I live way now, I live way out in a Rancho Cucamonga, Fontana area. So I got tons of records, right? So um, I would, so since the traffic would be heading in L.A. in the morning, what I would do, I would go even first, further east, what they call, the, y'all know it now as, as more popular is known as the Coachella Valley, where they had a festival. I would go as far as the Coachella Valley. That was like an hour, maybe 10 minutes, but there was no traffic going that way. And I would start in Palm Springs, okay? And I would just, I had this little routine I did every morning. It didn't matter. Um, I would go that way. And then I would either on 215, I would cut back Riverside Way, head that way, go to Beach City, or I would cut the other way and go out towards, as we y'all would know it, as Vegas area, Barstow, and um, all of that. Then cut back, come down either that 210 and do like Pasadena, Rio's, and Monrovia, all of that stuff, or come up to 10, or come down to 60 or to 70, or the 405. So it was just, I had a married of ways of doing things. So I would go as far as Zuma Beach. That's, you know, you have Malibu, then you have Zuma. So I would go mess with the surfer kids, you know, because they like to rap too. And just drop off a bunch of stuff. And that was my routine. I would go to like um, hood spots. I would go where the gangs, I knew all the Bloods and Crips and the Mexican gangs. So I, I, I was in a neutral way where nobody messed with me. They just knew me as the tape man or the, or the CD man or, you know, at first the, um, the record man, you know, oh, no, no, that's the record man. You can come in or you can do this. Oh, no, he good. So, and then from there, you know, I was building up a reputation. You know, my, my, my grind was ridiculous now that I think about it, how lazy people are now. Um, and um, then my fraternity, so I was getting a little tired of that routine. So my fraternity brother, clientele, he was a DJ at K-Day, right? And, um, and this is when they really started just concentrating on playing rap. You know, Greg Mack is up there now. And I knew that clientele knew all of the K-Day DJs. So I said, hey, man, clientele, do me a favor, man. Can you just take me to these guys? Because at this time, I'm making a lot of money, right? Cause everybody's hiring me from MC Hammer. He did Stupid Death Yell down there at McCola. Um, E-40, Uncle of St. Charles calls me, you know, because I'm from the Bay Area now. So one time I'm up in the Bay Area, and um, he, he finds my number through somehow. I'm not sure how he got it. and said he's putting out his, his nephew 
and his name is E40. Could I come out to Vallejo and listen to it? And he, they had like this really nice distribution thing in their garage out there in Vallejo, and I heard the stuff, and I really liked it. And I told him, sure, I'll, I'll help him out. So, um, for, so from there, you know, it just snowballed. You know, everybody was, you know, my name is now buzzing in the streets. So then the workload got so heavy, I went back and got my friends that I helped bring in with Giorgio um, to help me because they were still working with Giorgio, but he wasn't paying them. Nothing. They was like, man, we should have did what you did left. I was like, yeah, man, I was getting out of there, dude. I'm not sitting around. not about to get my, no money. So anyway, from there, um, they came and helped me uh, start promoting records. So somehow Capitol Records, um, um, reached out to me because they wanted to start a rap rap department um, and um, you know and all of that stuff at Capitol Records so I went up there and had a meeting with everybody up at Capitol Records uh, even uh, everybody the executives white black it didn't even matter all departments and was breaking down rap to them you know and I had all my little McCola material ready and you know and I was you know a college kid my, my, um, my, my wife at that time, um, Eleanor, she, you know, she come from like an accountant, very organized type of person. So she would actually put the stuff together for me, you know, and they were just super impressed. So I got Hammer's records in there. I got King T records in there. I'm now managing most of the K-Day Mix Masters, which was DJ M-Walk, uh, Battle Cat. Um, you know, then you had Trey Ski. You had Jammin' James. You had, um, you know, I wasn't managing Julio G or Tony G, but they were the K-Day Mix Masters, and they would play my stuff. Um, everybody started playing my stuff because I was getting all the, the, the new rap records. So k was just anything I would take to the Mix Masters, you would hear it all the time because everybody had their little own little mix segment. You know what I'm saying? You know, I got DJ Aladdin. I got all the K-Day Mix Masters, uh, Ralph M., uh, everybody, basically. Um and um, M-Walk was Tone Loke's DJ. So I would make M-Walk take stuff on the road for me and just leave it in their hotel rooms. And I just had really weird ways of just getting stuff placed. And um, so all the all the major labels started hearing about me. So MCA wanted to have a meeting with me. Uh, Arista wanted to have Now I got my boys, Lionel and Jeff, and them helping me, right? So uh, now um, MCA wanted me. Uh, all of them, every record label, okay, Arista, you know, they ended up uh, leaving and going to work for Arista. Arista uh, Clyde Davis tried to get us all, and L.A. Reid tried to get us all. And I'm like, man, I'm not moving to no New York. I'm a, I'm a West Coast kid. Y'all buy seats. You know what I'm saying? So now at this point, when, um, like, Jerry, like, the first time, you know, and just backing the story up, when Jerry met Easy. At Macola, that's when Jerry was ready to let go all of the groups he was managing, which was the Dream Team, Egyptian Lover, Rodney O, Joe Cooley. He said, Doug, I need you at this meeting. I'm about to meet with this guy that I think his stuff is really going to work. And um, I say, well, when? He said, I need you up here at Macola in the morning. And he knew, I said, Jerry, you know I don't come. I don't fight that traffic. He said, you got to fight it this morning. I said, okay. So I went up there, and I'm like, who's this guy he's talking about? So I'm um, I'm smoking a Newport, uh, listening to the music from I had a Blue Suzuki Samurai that was parked on Santa Monica Boulevard in El Centro, 
and just waiting on whoever it is we're supposed to meet. And then I see a burgundy Suzuki Samurai from the south side of the street pull up. Two cats jump out. They had on, you know, they looked like gangbangers, you know, because after a while I started knowing what gangbangers looked like. They had on some um, um, white T-shirts and, you know, some fresh um, 501 starch jeans and um, and Converse, blue Converse. So I say, hmm, these look like some Crips. So one, you know, was easy. He looked like he had easy. Looked like he had some money though. You could, he had the little brick-like phone, cell phone, <laughs> little little jewelry on him. Cause Jerry Curl was fresh. Ran to, ran, hopped out the car. He was in the passenger side. They crossed the street. I knew it was them. Put the cigarette out. Went on my side of the office. Told Jerry they was there. And he said, how you know? I said, because they look like gangbangers. And Jerry and Don started laughing. And then Jerry asked Easy to, um, if he could see his office, use his office for the meeting. Um, Don said, okay. So we all walked into the office. And for some reason, Rand didn't come in. He he went somewhere. So just me, Jerry, and Easy. And um, Easy started laying out his plan to us, what, what he wanted to do and um, you know, he explained to me um, that, you know, you know, a lot of rappers from the West Coast, we sound like New York cats, but when you hear this stuff, and he tried to put a tape in, and I was like, uh-uh, I don't listen to music in front of people, easy, no disrespect, because y'all gonna want me to start bobbing my head and doing my little neck, and I don't do that. I just listen to it when on my own time, and I'll tell you if I'm gonna do the project or not. He said, well, I know you're gonna like it. I know you're gonna like it. So the meeting took about three, four hours, though. But I can see that he had everything mapped out. I was like, hmm. And then when he told me that Dr. Dre produced it, I'm like, Dr. Dre produced it? I thought he was in the wrecking crew. He said, nah, he's with me now. He he just gave Lonzo his last record. I said, what, the Turn Off the Lights record I'm working? He said, yep. So now we got this group called NWA. And I was like, what what is that? What what's, what that acronym or what that abbreviation means? Then he just started laughing ha, 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 under his breath, right? And I was like, I don't know, what does it mean? He said, can't tell you, it's a secret. I'm like, man, tell me what it means. He said, nah, if you listen to the music, I'll tell you what it means. You tell me she's going to do it or not. I said, okay, deal. So he gives me his home number, he gives me his cell number, and he gives me his pager number because we remember everybody had pages back then. So I say, okay, when I'm going, when I'm driving home, you know, I'm put, pop it in and I'm going to tell you what I think. So... Mind you, I'm still working for all these labels. And at this point, Capital is ready to break some real bread with me. So I'm at a Capital meeting. I, I do all my DJ runs, you know, check on my KD Mix Masters, make sure they stay sure getting, they new, getting stuff. new stuff. And, um, and um, from there, um, you know, I'm sitting in the parking lot of Capital Records. They was right off the 101. Uh fired up some weed and you know I'll take like usually two puffs to deal with that traffic and then that's when I you would do my A&R stuff you know so because it's going to take me like an hour 20 minutes or an hour 10 minutes to get home so let me see this little more because he was so short you know like let me see this little beep 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 talking about <laughs> right so um, you know roll up the ramp pop it in and then Oh, my God. Dope, man. Please, can I get another hit? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, and it was just, I mean, the woofers was woofing like they would say the tweeters was tweeting. 
the bottom, the bass, the the man, the sonics of it. It was like, oh my god, because I had an incredible system in my car, right? And all of this cursing. And, you know, we all know what they were saying. And beep, beep, pop, beep. But it was just so dope. I had never heard nothing like that before. And I'm sitting up there cracking up the whole way home. So I get in the house. I paid Jeezy. Um, and then I hit his home number. And I said, okay, yeah, he gave me a cell number. I called him. He picked up on his cell number. And then he was like, uh, whatever little slang was, uh, who this or whatever, back then, whatever the terminology people use when they answer the phone. I said, Doug, man, you said you listen to the music? I said, hell yeah. I said, y'all did that? He said, and I said, Dr. Drake produced it? He said, yeah, what you think? I said, that shit is what the man. You know, I don't know. I said maybe something to the likes of y'all going to jail. You think we were going to play that? I said, I know I can get it going in the streets, but is anybody going to play that? With all that cursing? Yeah, I don't care if they don't play it in on the radio or any of that stuff. If you get it, you so you can get it going in the streets. I said, man, I can get that going in the streets, dude. He was like, um, so um, let me let me. Uh, skip back. He had already prepaid me. He gave me it already because it was like three songs on that first 12 inch. It was like Boys in the Hood, Dope Man, um, and Fat Girls. Uh, well, I'm not sure if 8 Ball Junkie was on it yet, but because they, because one of the great things about Macola Records, you can make whatever you want to make because we pressed it on site, right? So I was like, yeah, um, I'm ready. He said, okay, well, look, uh, We're we going to take the picture for the art cover tomorrow. He said, you come down and be in it if you want to. So I come down. I said, no, I don't want to be in it. Um, but I'll come down because he said, uh, if you just want the uh, white labels, they ready tomorrow. So I said, heck yeah, I'm going to get up. I got up, go back and grab the white labels. And they was in the in that, that first picture you see with everybody in the Jerry Curls with all that graffiti writing. That's actually, that picture is taken in the back of Macola Records in the alley you know, at the loading dock part of it. So um, Okay, this was NWA and the Posse, right? Yeah, NWA and the Posse, that cover that you see. Yep, that's taken yeah. in the back of McCola Records, okay? So so I just, I grabbed like, um, I grabbed as many as my, my uh, Suzuki could hold. I think I grabbed like that first day, like maybe like a thousand, because I worked at UPS, so I used to know how to pack I used to know how to pack something, and um, and I was off and running. And man, that thing just when I tell you exploded, and on the West Coast. But it, even at that time, I thought that that was something that was really probably going to only do something on the West Coast. And um, you know, it was doing its thing. It was doing its thing, and all during that time, Jerry was trying to get it a deal, and he couldn't get it a deal. Russ Regan actually wanted to sign it to Motown. Barry Gordy stepped in and said, oh, hell no. And um, asked Jerry Heller and um, um, Russ Regan, what are y'all smoking? And then um, a lot of people just wouldn't touch it. Uh, Clyde, he took it over to Clyde Davis, everything. Clyde said, I can't mess with that. And then um, think he even took it to his apprentice that became a very rich man in the end, Irving Azoff. And 
Irving Yates off saying, Jerry, look, I'm not going to sign NWA, but I'll sign J.J. Fad. You know what I'm saying? So J.J. Fad was the first one to get a deal, really, a major deal. And J.J. Fad was the one that actually infused the company with money. So um, somehow, you know, Jerry being still as plugged in and he was getting traction because Jerry kind of got kicked out of the business after them 70s when he had like Elton John and Jefferson Airplane and uh, what's that, Jim Morrison. He managed all of them people. Um, he, he took a break from the business. Maury Alexander asked him to come back because of the scene that was starting to happen at McCola Records at that time. So somehow, because they, you know, they knew distributors and um, remember we had back in the day, you had those, um, what I would call independent superstar distribution centers. And um, Brian Turner at that time, who had only the raisins and, um, you know, those commercials, a lot of people don't know, but the, the real person behind that label was his partner, Mark Cerami. Mark Cerami um, was the, uh, an owner in, in Priority Records that people never hear about. His parents had a major distribution uh, in all throughout the mid, the center of America. They had that on lock. That's how the Raisins was able to, able to sell all those millions of records with all that advertising behind them. So um, we uh, had a meeting. Uh, uh, Jerry set up a meeting at Priority Records. Uh, and the people that were at that original meeting at Priority Records um, was Jerry Heller, Eazy-E. -E. Uh, Dr. Drake came to that meeting. I was at that meeting with Brian and Mark Cerami. Um, my fraternity brother, Hilton, he was just with me that day, and I couldn't take him home, so I had to bring him with me to the meeting. Jerry called me out the blue, hey, you got to come to this meeting and tell Brian what you're seeing down at McCullough because um, my office was right next to the place where the records went out. And I used to go in there and keep count of what it was selling behind Don McMillan's and uh, Jim Takeda's back. He was in charge of distribution. So I would write down the numbers. And that record was at least at that time, at that little short period of time, was up to like about almost 300,000 pieces out the door in wax. So I told them what I saw. And, um, um, but we all knew you don't really get paid from a cola. And I don't blame Don McMillan. I want to pay people either. Now that I, a lot of this stuff is hindsight when you look back at it, right? They're not going to give him nothing because most of them went off and did super major deals. They can give McCola a dime, like Ice-T and everybody, uh, uh, Hammer. Uh, it's always easier to tell people the persons that didn't use McCola distribution uh, thing was Too Short because Too Short only had tapes up here. And E-40 didn't because his his uncle did his distribution. E-40's uncle, St. Charles, was a very sharp man, so I can see why E-40 is successful as he is. He's very bright. He was a very bright. Well, he is. He's not dead, so he's a very bright man. Um, yeah. So I'm telling Brian Turner them this, and then um, then Brian said, are you sure? I said, I know. I'm sure. I, I got notes of it because I had it in, like, one of those little tiny notepads. And I showed him. I told him, showed him dates. I say, and then he said, well, where your office sit from 
what he let the records out. I said, I'm just right adjacent. I can look at it on my office, and I can see when Jim Takeda is putting in there. And then on, on the boxes, you know, you would see what the record is right? because I'm, I'm the promoter. So, and I said, I've, I've been keeping this from this date to this date. And my guesstimation was it was close to 300,000 because 50, 50 records used to fit into a box, okay, back then. Um, and then the box was, the boxes were stacked to the ceiling. And then I knew how much, how many was in a row. So you just do the math. If they're all even up there, it's just real simple math. And then he was like, really? I said, I'm positive. He said, so if we signed this group, I said, you signed this group, you're going to make a lot of money. And then I looked at him and I didn't blink. And I was doing a lot of the talking. Dre didn't say nothing. Easy did his input. Jerry was over talking it and all of that other stuff. I just said, look, bro, I could do this stuff by myself. I could promote the record. I don't care. I don't really need any help. I don't care about the curtain. I said, if you got ways of just getting it past, you know, California and Arizona, and then you had that other thing in um, Texas, I forget what the name of that district, because we was doing good in all of those places already. Like, and we was doing good, like out in Cleveland, but we could not break that eastern board door. And I said, if you guys can get us, you know, up in Yahweh in Chicago, we needed to get in there, St. Louis, Boston, New York, Philly, D.C., all of those areas, we was doing nothing, you know, at McCola, really. But from the makeshift distribution way that they had it structured back then, we was already making noise because one of the great things about my job, they got they let me do anything I want. So I would just go to those places, pop in for a weekend, um, have the record shipped there, rent a car, drop a bunch of stuff off, and be up out of there the first thing smoking Sunday morning. All right, so a lot of people don't understand just – see, we hear stories about Ruthless Records, but they don't know how big Ruthless was at that time. Can you just tell us about how big and important Ruthless Records was in that era? Okay, in that era, as that era was coming up here on, in Los Angeles, you had two superpowers. At first, it was Rhyme Syndicate, Ice-T's crew, okay, in L.A. But when Ruthless came, it exploded like a bomb. I mean, it took everything to a next level because some of the moves that Easy made was brilliant. Um, he ended up buying the group J.J. Fad from my friend, and I, I left him out. I promoted his stuff was at McCullough, too. Rudy Pardee, who had a group called the L.A. Dream Team, okay? And uh, Arabian Prince, who was in NWA, used to produce a lot of stuff for uh, Rudy Pardee. And Arabian Prince is the one who produced Supersonic. But just on that record alone, a, a quick story, but, and I'm going to stay on the roof because this is still on the roofless path and lane. Their original single was Another, Another Hope. And... Um, Supersonic was on the flip side. So as I was out promoting that for Rudy, I'm like, nah, it was this kid club, kids club that my friend of mine, I've been knowing, he was going to Fairfax High School at that time. He used to give high school parties. They had flipped the record and it was one of those teen clubs. And everybody was in there 
of just losing their mind to Supersonic. I go in there because it was right off La Cienega about Fat, fat Burgers in uh, the Beverly Center, right? I'm like, wow, I'm seeing all them kids was going crazy. And I was like, I had I had the tape of it, so I had to. When I got back in my Jeep, I flipped the tape and I'm listening to the Supersonic record now, even more, right? I'm like, okay, okay. So I take the news back to Rudy. He flips it, and then it started making some traction because we was coming right in after push it. And then um, I just knew how Rudy was for money, so I said to I suggested to Easy, hey man, I was you. I would ask Rudy because Easy had money. You know what I'm saying? I would try to buy JJ Fast from Rudy. You know, you bring that over, that'll be the girl group. You know, you got your stuff, you got NWA, and if, and if, and then I, w- I said to him, and I'm quite sure after NWA, it's going to be either you or Ice Cube that come out next. I said, think about it. So go grab them girls, you know. So he went and bought the girls from Rudy, and, um, and he had he had a crew, and then uh, uh, they did whatever they did. They did the same thing with Michelle A. She just basically followed over. So they had that R and B singer, and he was he was straight. So all I mean, they had all the power in L. A. Once the thing just exploded, and then let me just let me let me let me be clear on something of how that thing exploded, and and everybody leave this out. I'm sitting up. I went to his thing. You know, um, my man um, Soren book. Uh, called the history of gangster rap. He had a um, book signing um, in Hollywood last week, and people were leaving this one person out, which is just so weird. If, if you don't say something, you actually get left out of history in this this game. Okay, the reason why NWA just exploded was because because of their publicist Phyllis Pollock. You know, the record was doing good. Of course, when the album came out, the Straight Outta Compton album. It was getting all the white kids and all of that stuff. But guess what made that thing just go into an orbit we none of us never saw? It's when the FBI sent that letter. When the FBI sent that letter to Priority Records, and what you see in uh, um, the Straight Outta Compton movie is some bullshit. That didn't happen like that. But Easy was talking about, nah, we should do. Then Easy didn't do nothing. Didn't say nothing happened was this is the honest truth of how that whole thing went down when the letter was sent ryan turner assistant lillian matulik was in a panic was in a uh, was in a panic scared to death uproar she didn't know what to do brian turner was on vacation and had a do not disturb him basically about nothing so she didn't know what to do she calls phyllis Pollock. And Phyllis Pollock is one of those publicists from the late, from the 70s. She's like a, she's like a mad woman. You know what I'm saying? A yeah. Jewish girl that's smart as a whip when it comes to knowing how to do publicity. Um, matter of fact, she was a Luther Campbell's publicist when he was in all of that trouble. Remember how they was trying to get him for being vulgar? Um, yeah. She really helped with Jay Prince when they was out there trying to... Um, uh, plant dope on them. She was a rapper lot promoter. She was the one that got Maxine Waters involved for him when they was out Dang. there. Uh, try- yeah, was trying to set. Yeah, they was trying to set Jay up. Them cats was out there trying to kill Jay Prince. Yeah, Jay Prince, my man. You know what I'm saying? And then they shot or they shot uh, uh, Scarface and planted dope in his car. And she was the one 
that uh, had Maxine Waters help out with him and got all that stuff off of him. You know what I'm saying? Because Jay's a good yeah. dude. Jay, Jay Prince is Jay Prince is real. Made a lot of money with Jay. Jay always do what he say he's going to do. That's why Jay is like one of the nicest guys as long as you fair in business. Now, you won't come at him with them shenanigans. Well, you remember, that's how you wanted it. Anyway, right. <laughs> long story short, when Phyllis Pollock got the FBI letter, she's like, I know what to do with this letter. And um, Lillian Matulik, which was Brian Turner's assistant at Priority Records, she said, please help us out, Phyllis. Phyllis then took the letter because she had a relationship with the people in New York at the Village Voice, right? She showed it to the, the, the editor of the Village Voice, and they could not believe it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it was front-page news. So everybody tried to give it, everybody that dealt that credit. It was that FBI blunder that made that group blow up, and Phyllis Pollock was the one that got that to be a front page story in the in the Village Voice in New York. That that week <laughs> that was a front page story in the Village Voice. Fucking remember MTV is now there. You see what I'm saying? They jumped on there. They jumped on that that record. They jumped on it in all of New York. That's how we got New York really interested in what was going on. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. They was like, well who is these guys? You know what a what a FBI is threatening you and telling you to take that Fuck the police song. We ain't taking shit off. You know what I'm saying? And um, so they started running the story. And then from there, it exploded. Then you had Europe. Everybody wanted to know who is this group. And then when everybody understood what NWA stood for and with the FBI on our wig now and breathing down our neck, it just, as is, um, they say, it boiled over from there. Yeah, because I remember I had read in Jerry Heller's book, he said that he was catching some flag behind that too because he was a Jew and said that it was making some noise over there in Europe and said that he was getting calls from the uh, the Nazi Gestapo, the Russian NKV, mm -hmm. and and who? The uh, the German Stasi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, yeah. He I said, mean, that thing, that thing, that thing took his... Uh, that thing, and then we had people picketing down at Priority Records. It was like, wow. And then Phyllis sitting over there with that old Chester cat, the Grinch who stole Christmas grin on her face after all that nonsense that she did now kicked up sitting over there that color like Madonna smoking a cigarette back to back to back laughing. I'm like, she said, I told you it was going to happen, Dad. Imagine somebody with one of them old witch, black witch hats all sitting in the dark room. Smoking a cigarette, laughing about what she just did. <laughs> <laughs> that old grit you stole Christmas smile on her face. <laughs> oh man, so um, yeah, because that 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 it really had ignited the fire in a lot of people. So, um, hold on. When so when when everything was going on at Ruthless, when did Suge start coming around? Well, that's a, that's a funny question because um, I never noticed who who the, who the fuck Suge was. People, was, let, me, let me put it like this: this this is what happened. This is what happened. 
So I'm, so after a while, you know, now Ruthless is the record label and everything is routine and, you know, Cube leaves. And, and I remember I was like, ah, I, okay, let me let me start there. When Cube left, right, we have a meeting at, um, when the rumors was about, was 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 true, and um, actually that's when I stopped going to anybody's marketing meetings because I used to have to be at the marketing meeting at Priority Records, right? So um, I remember at the Cube left, I'm at the marketing meeting, I'm looking at all these motherfuckers, Easy there, me and him shooting at each other's spitballs through straws at each other, me, him, and Phyllis. And then we had Pat Charbonnet in there, all of the Priority people, Guy Maganello, um, um, Brian's assistant, you know, uh, you know everybody. You know our our our, our daily people. Uh, Mark Sharami, the vice president. You, this was you. You had to be there meeting. And um, that was the last time I went to a marketing meeting too. And I told him I'm not coming to more of these marketing meetings. I was I was sick to death first when I heard that Cube was left. Then I just looked at everybody as easy, and I looked at Easy and Jerry sitting over there with this little smugness on their face. I said, let me ask everybody something. And that's you too, Brian Turner, because something didn't feel right about that. I knew Brian was with it because he a, he's a sneaky little fucking snake. You understand what I'm saying? I, just, I remember going, let me ask somebody, everybody something. This first question is for you two. And then mm-hmm. I could see Pat Charbonnet, because all of them scheming, because remember, Q was the man with the voice in NWA. Let's keep it a thousand, right? So I said to them, I said, how y'all going to let the nigga with the attitude out of a group called nigga with attitude? Said, How's that going to work? I'm just wondering. And then I'm over here and I'm looking at Pat Charbonnet because you can see that she won't. Cause, okay, Pat Charbonnet was a publicist too, but she was the, for Priority Records. She was on the black side of publicity. Phyllis Pollock was on. Phyllis Pollock would be at the marketing meetings because she's now, she's the pop, not only just pop, but on the rock side of it and she was you know pat charbonnet was very good don't get me wrong right but phyllis that woman is crazy so she gonna go and just do some super somersault flips to make some controversy happen and she's seen controversy roll wrote all over the group anyway so and i just told looked at brian and i looked at mark both of the owners of the company say i'm not coming to more of these market meetings it's turning into like Regular marketing meetings at real record companies, full of shit. Um, so I just saw, because just I was just like, wow, they now Cube is gone. Now he go here we go with the divide and conquer. And then when I found out how much money they had paid him, like only like twenty or thirty some thousand dollars, you know, um, for the straight out of Compton uh, writing and shit, I made like one hundred ninety thousand, maybe two hundred thousand dollars off of it. You know what I'm saying with uh, my billing the way I build them. Um, right. And that don't even include the product that I sold. That was just my money. Um, and um, so I remember Ruthless is now about to get their new offices in Woodland Hills. So I remember just going out there, you know, picking up my stuff from them. And then, and then I, I, I said my last word about the Q thing. I said, look, no harm, no foul with, with letting Cube go, but I don't get it. Why y'all didn't just let him have a solo album, pay him a bunch of upfront money that you're going to steal from him in the back end. I would have gave him $2 million to steal the rest of his money. I don't get, I don't, I don't understand the math y'all done just did. It don't make any sense to me. Now he's by himself. I would have gave him an upfront, here, you can do your solo album, Ice Cube, to budget of $2 million. 
to go and steal like these record companies do, 50 million from you. Um, but I, I remember just saying to him, don't try that shit with Dr. Dre. Because if you lose fucking Dr. Dre, or if he decide to ever leave this, this label, you're going to be just oh, any old basic record company. Because Dr. Dre is your sound. So right. left it there. No, it was no hard feelings. Bygones be bygones. And then got back to work. So as I'm going out there, you know, now, you know, some time has passed. I remember they done did a, a, that um, niggas for life spelt backwards and, you know, all of those other little things they did when he, I mean, when um, Cube left, you know what I'm saying? They done did the Michelle thing. We balling out of control. We up in all the hills, swim pool parties like that. Now that stuff for what you saw in the movies, true. But I'm still not knowing who the fuck Suge Knight is, though. Um, so, and mind you guys, remember, I'm still working now for all the labels everywhere. Uh, overseas, in New York, people shoot me product. So my thing really became like a super routine where I would just pick up stuff when no, no real time to hang. I, people don't see me with a lot of pictures with people because I wasn't, the groupie thing wasn't me taking pictures with this person or that person. So I remember going out to grab the new product from NWA. Um, and then I was saying, okay, I'm going to go out to Woodland Hills, and then I'm going to cut back, go get my money from MCA Records. That's when they was in Universal City. That's when they was at Universal and Kawanga. Um, so I do all that. I go get the new product from, N- I mean, the NWA, which I went and got the Above the Law album. Cocaine gets his name back. He's not Who Am I. I got the Jimmy Z Project that day from uh, the Ruthless um, um, Records. I got this group called the Penthouse Players. Okay, we got Quick in there. And as I'm in the office that day, I'm noticing this had a lot of fucking producers in here. I see Irock. I see Jamin James. I see the guy who produced the Tupac movie. I forget what his name is. What's his name, you guys? Um, that did the Tupac movie. I see Cutie 3, Quincy Jones the third son. Um, I can see a bunch of producers. It didn't. It's just strange because you don't really see a bunch of. Oh yeah, I see Willow from Solid Production. He's in there. So now I ain't paid no mind. I just grabbed my stuff. I said, "Let me get out of here" because I got. Um, that's when records was coming out on Tuesdays. Now records are now coming out on Tuesdays. So everybody, I had to go to all of these companies. So I just got my records. I was like, "I got to get over MCA, get this money from MCA too." You know what I'm saying? So um, I go to MCA Records, mess around with Brooke Bailey up there, go holler at Ernie Singleton, holler at the check lady, holler at Lil Silas, hang out with them for a minute, shoot the breeze. Uh, Dallin, he was the guy that was the product manager over there. So told him how many records, and at that, that this I had this done down like a well-oiled machine. I wouldn't pick up records from him. I'd just go get my check. They was bringing my records on a 16-wheel truck out to my house. I got a three-car garage. Now me and my wife married. We now got some kids, you know what I'm saying? We doing it, right? Brand new neighborhood, the whole nine. So that day I went to MCA, shot the breeze, but it was still too early to drive in that L.A. traffic. You understand traffic out here? That is the deal killer in Los Angeles. It's our traffic, people. It's the traffic. So I then, um, so let me kill some time. So um, my boy, the 45 King, was coming out to Los Angeles, 45 King, if y'all don't know who that is, that's Latifah, Naughty by Nature, they early producers, Chill Rock G, 
you know, like Kim Shabazz, like T, Apache, that's the flavor unit before um, Shaquem and Latifah actually took over the flavor unit. Mark was the the person who created the flavor unit, all right? Um, he was coming out, but he wasn't quite here yet. So he was telling me uh, um, he was supposed to, uh, I was supposed to meet him at the Marjorie and then he was, I was like, ah, right, he's going to be getting here too late, though. And I'm going home if that traffic died. So I still needed to kill some time. So I come out of MCA, go up to Fatburger. I said, I'm going to eat me a Fatburger. I'm going to take my time doing it. So when I walk into Fatburger, um, uh, I see Dr. Dre. But I didn't notice um, that, okay, Dr. Dre had a black, convertible um, Corvette back then, okay? But it wasn't parked in front of it. Um, I pulled right in front of his. It's off to where now there's a subway at parked in the corner where I didn't notice it, but I saw it. I said, what's up, Jay? What up? What's up, nigga? Yeah, just left Rufus, man. Yeah. I see fucking they finally gave cocaine back his number, a name. I'm just talking and just that. And he was kind of drunk because that's when him and um, Doc used to always be drunk, D-O-C meaning. Um, always be drunk, you know, and um, he was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, man, and this, uh, you know, I'm just rattling off. I'm just talking, right? And yeah, man, what's up with this Penthouse Clear record? Like, uh, uh, DJ Quick produced for Easy, man. Yeah, DJ Quick, that's a bad little motherfucker, man. And I'm just talking to Dre like, ah, nah, nah. And then when Dre does that, that nah, nah, and um, it was wrong. Because that means something's wrong with Drake. Because I'm, I'm now knowing him. You know, I know his personality and everything. Like they trying to starve me out, dude. They trying to starve me out. He ain't trying to starve you out. I said, you know that. He said, you notice I ain't been up there no more, huh? I said, nah, not really. But I, 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 I did see a lot of producers in there when I just left. He said, yeah, man. Um, me, RBS, the DOC, and shit. We about to start a new label. I said, what? I said, what, what's it called? He said, Death Row, man. I said, you lying. He said, no, nah, man. I ain't been up there in a while. I said, yeah, because I, 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 I knew something didn't look right. And then I was like, oh, that's why all those producers was up there. He said, yeah. I said, oh, shit. So then... um. You know, I pay for my stuff. I got a guap, you know, my pockets at this time, and my socks got the mumps, right? I pay for my shit, you know, gave the person $50, a $100 bill, um, and then um, Dre goes to pay for his stuff, and this motherfucker was counting coins, 50 cents, and, and telling them, hold up for a minute. Let me go out to the car to get some more change. And I'm like, what the fuck to myself? And I said, Dre, you ain't got no money? He said, nah, not really, man. He said, man, they ain't been paying me. And then he started laughing. He was like, man, and you know, my house almost burned down. And he started laughing at his breath. Remember that Eminem song talking about how he may have did that? Or he would have lost it. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. I say, so where you staying at? He said, man, I'm staying at the Marjorie He said, you staying at the Marjorie Hotel on Sunset by the House of Blues? He said, yeah. I said, damn, the 45 King going to be staying over there, and um, he's supposed to get in in a couple of hours. I said, but check this out, man, here. 
I gave, you know, I broke him off a couple of hundreds, maybe six, seven hundred dollars. Man, I'm going back out the roof. Well, I grabbed my motherfucking food, went back out the roof with motherfucking record, right? Yeah, motherfucker. I know what's going on now. I, I and now, um, now we have um, uh, what's his name? Um, um, man, I can't even think. I'm sorry. Oh, Gary Ballin. That's um, Jerry Heller's first cousin. He's the office manager. Right. And um, so. He said, um, he said, um, you know, um, um, and then, um, the, the twins was in there and, uh, who else was in there? Easy was in there and Jerry was in there. So it was the twins, Gary Ballin, everybody else was gone by the end, right? It was the twins, Gary Ballin, Easy was still there. Jerry was still there. And, um, I said, yeah, motherfucker, I know what's going to happen now. Oh, let me let me back that story up a little bit. So they, remember, I went out there and got the product and a check. So they they bank Ruthless Bank at that time was Wells Fargo Bank, right? So before I actually went in there talking about talk this shit, I'm about to talk to him. I went and cashed that motherfucking check, right? So um, <laughs> yeah. got my money, cashed that check. Then I went in there, and um, I said, "Yeah, nigga, I know all them for why them producers are in there now." Dr. Drayden left, and I told you, motherfucker. I said, I told you, motherfucker. Don't ever let Dr. Dre go. And I looked at Easy, and I looked at Jerry, looked at Gary, looked at the twins, the Samoan the security of Easy, and say, this is going to be the worst mistake this label have ever, ever made. Now, you guys are just a regular record company. Nothing special about you. Nothing. Trust me, nothing. I don't know what it was that happened between y'all, but you should have made it right. You should have gave the man this money. The motherfuckers, the Michael Jordan, are promoting. I mean, are producing. Fuck out of here. Fuck out of here. Where the fuck with this label man? One for Dre. I don't give a fuck if he fucks off all the money in the world. Well, you give him some more. And then you help him get a money manager or something. I don't know. I don't know what happened. So this is what I'm going to do. I just got the records that y'all know a couple hours ago. A man of, of, of my word, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. All right? And I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to promote y'all shit. I'm going to finish promoting y'all stuff. Then I quit. I'm rolling with Dre. Because um, I told Dre, I'm going to go out here and quit. And then I'm going to come work for you, Dre. I don't know what they did. He said, for real, Doug? I said, man, I sure you're going to need some promotion help. He said, hell yeah. He said, man, as a matter of fact, we had to do this old whack song I don't like. Um called Deep Cover, man. And I got these new little artists, man. This one dude called Snoop. Uh, the, 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 um, I uh, got this new artist called Snoop. Um, and he's got these, you know, we got some people. I said, so where y'all, uh, um, so where, where's the studio? He said, the Solar Building. I said, I said uh, well, Dick Griffey let y'all be at Solar? He said, it's Dick Griffey that's, you know, helping us out. So, uh, he said, man, so whenever you want to come by and grab some of that stuff, he said, yeah, it's a ton of them 12 inches, that deep cover 12 inch. Um, yeah, so so Drake didn't want to do the deep cover song? No, they hated that song. Him and Snoop hated it. They're basically, Dick Griffey made them do it. What? Yeah, man, I had them niggas at gunpoint, basically. Nigga, hostage to go get that shit, to go get it done. 
Yeah, because they wasn't really making no money. When you look at that soundtrack, it's going to be on Sony, right? Dick Griffey still had a deal with Sony Records. So let me tell you that story. Let me finish telling you the story, right? So the 40 now, because now the gang of time done passed. 45 King is in, okay? Because at this time I have, you know, um, I have a cell phone, but that's when burners was popular. You know, we get a cell phone. It might last five months to a year. You pay for it one time. And one day you, you go to use it, and that motherfucker don't work no more. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Remember them days of the cell phones? Um, yeah, man. And um, so uh, Mark calls me on the burner saying he's at the hotel. So I say, well, look, I got to go home, see my kids, you know, hang out with my family, because my wife was really complaining a lot at that time that I wasn't at home enough, and she was right. So I say, I can't stay today. So I, But I just went over there briefly to just see him. He's in. You know, because he just got there in the flight from New York, right? So as we in the lobby, you see Dre. Told Dre what happened. I said, yeah, man. Saw the motherfuckers. He said, you told them? And Dre was cracking up, right? Dre, me and Dre cracking up. I told them motherfuckers I quit. I told them I cashed your motherfucking check. So don't even try that, you know, putting a stop on the check shit. Um, and um, and then um, introduced Mark. I th- no, I think the Mark, I say, Mark, that, that's the Dr. Dre. Or something. Somehow, Mark asked Dre, did he want a 45 King um, tape? And then Dre looked at Mark and said, you the 45 King? I said, yeah, that's a 45 King. That's why I came over here to see. I told you it's 45 King. It's Dr. Dre, right? He said, man, um, so what y'all doing right now? Uh, Mark said, I'm tired. He was jet lagged. And then he was like, well, Doug, you coming over to get the records tomorrow, right? I said, yeah, I'm coming by and get the you know, because at this time, I'm an upgrade. I ain't in the Suzuki no more. I'm in an Isuzu Trooper, a brand-new Isuzu Trooper truck, right? I said, yeah. Well, and the 45 King was going to be out here for a couple of weeks or something. I think Latifa was doing something. I'm not sure. Um, he was going to be at the Marjorie for a couple of weeks. So I said, yeah, what I'll do is I ain't doing nothing tomorrow, man. We're going to just come hang out with you. I'm going to go get the 45 King. We're going to, you know, grab us some, um, you know, after traffic. And uh, he said, what time? I said, what time y'all used to be in the studio, Dre? And then he said, we usually get there like uh, around uh, 2, you know, before traffic because most of them is coming from Long Beach. I say, most of your new little artists, okay, say, okay, okay, they come from Long Beach, okay. He said, so they usually be there like around 1 or 2. I said, that's perfect, man, because I usually leave my house, you know, around 11 after traffic. I'm gonna come hang out with Mark, grab Mark. I'm gonna bring this. I'm gonna bring Mark to the studio. He said, "Yeah, bring Mark to the studio." So we go over there, go to Solar Building, and it's like what y'all see in the doc. It was a gang of them little kids. You see, corrupt Dash, Nate Dog, Jewel, Rage. It was uh, what's his name? Bushwick Bill was in there. Uh, what's his name? Uh, RBX is in there. Yeah, I mean, that studio was like a party. And then a whole bunch of hanger-oners from Long Beach and all these little young little kids. And I'm like, dang, I'm back around all these young little kids again, right? But they all were just happy, you know, super bouncing. They step, you know. Um, but I was like, okay, okay. So I'm starting to listen to some of this chronic record, right? I'm like, okay, okay. Um, and then at that point when we was in there, that's when they was doing – they had a they had a, a fuck the police song that they ended up really they taking off that chronic album because that's when all that ice tea stuff was going on. It was Mr. Officer, Mr. Officer, I wanna see your ass in a coffin, sir. 
that record that was pulled off the phone i mean off the off the chronic album because sony made them pull it off so anyway i grabbed as many of those um deep covers um uh 12 inches as i could right and loaded them up so um me and mark hung out took mark back um then i started passing them around the city for a couple of weeks in l.a wasn't getting no bites and it was like huh i can see fucking um ruthless got the don't fuck with nothing from death road word out right i was like you dirty motherfuckers to myself right so i understand not beating a, a dead horse theory so i was like okay well fuck california man i'm gonna take it with me because i was uh on my way to see mark in a week or two so what i did was i usually would stay at the wellington hotel on on 7th Ave around 56th Street in Manhattan. And um, and I would I ship him to that hotel. And then the way I did my New York thing was I would get there like on a, on a Thursday. So there was this club called Nails that was cracking on Thursday. That's where all the models was. You would see Tyra Banks in there, Russell being there, a young Puffy, um, um, uh, did I say Andre Harrell, uh, Tyra Banks and her old crew. You see Jada Pinkett in that joint, Latifah, and then you just seen all the little fashion models, Naomi Campbell, um, Kamora Lee. They had a crew. It was Kamora. Um, Naomi Campbell was, was hanging out with Tyra Banks. And it was this one girl. She was larger than all of them back then. She played... Um, She's played in Spike Lee movie, um, Malcolm X's mistress. Not Malcolm X's, but the Elijah Muhammad's mistress, the one that he got pregnant. I forget what right. her name is, but she was large. She was the largest one out of all of them back then. But she played that role, and I should go in there and spit at them. But And then since I had the Cali weed, I always had the Cali sticky icky with me, right? So everybody would just see me and just flock to me, just like, fire paper so you had a young tretch sneaking in and that club was just off the hook nails right so i go to nails i do my little stuff you know class out some records so i left some uh, deep covers and nails i was too tired to go by the 45 king apartment on 42nd and the west end highway i go home i told him hey, man i'm gonna come on I, said, I'm gonna, I told him i'm gonna be here until sunday Anyway, you know, so I always, do, I always take the first thing smoking Sunday mornings, right? So, but one of the great things about the 45 King House, I was able to go and just dump off a ton of records at the 45 King House. So um, I do all my stuff. I go to uh, downstairs records. I go to um, all of the clubs. I go to the Fever in the Bronx. I go to all of the clubs, all of the places that I'm supposed to go and hang out and do my record. And um, um, so from there, uh, just dropped off a gang of them at the 45 King House because at that time, all the DJs was at the 40, would be at the 45 King House. You would see Kid Capri. You would see DJ Premier. You would see um, – um, it was just everybody because the 45 King was like the man. He was the dude. You would see Diamond D. I mean, everybody, DJ Red Alert, uh, happy anniversary to him, by the way, 35 years on the radio. I mean, just everybody, um, Chuck Chillout, everybody, um, 
what's her name? Name uh, Hank Shockley. His house was just a mecca. If you was in hip hop, and all of everybody would be there, so I would just leave a. I left a gang of them there, and just dumped them all over New York. And I didn't think nothing of them. I gave it to some to stretch and by Beto, um, everybody, everybody that was a DJ. I would go to Harlem and leave some at that little, um, it was that black lady's place in Harlem. I forget what her name is. And then it was this other diner that I would just, I would just leave it. And um, didn't pay it no mind. So I don't know, about three, three weeks later, fly back out to New York um, on a Saturday. No, what was doing? No, I, I fly out there on a Friday, and um, I didn't go to nails, you know, because nails on Thursday. But I fly out and get there on Friday morning, and I see Hank Shockley uh, on Broadway in the um, what they would call the um, what's that district called? I forget what that movement, uh, Columbus Circle area, right? And uh, he was like, "Doug, back in New York." I said, "Yeah, man." I said, uh, I'm going to go to the 45 King. Um, um, I talked to the 45 King. He said, um, Saturday, um, he's going to rent a limousine, and we're going to go to Superman Clark Kent's club. Now, mind you, I already dropped off some stuff with Clark Kent, dropped off stuff at the 45 King house, and just and dropped off stuff all everywhere, all over New York prior to being back out there three weeks later. So I said, man, you should come hang out with us. And he said, okay. I said, just meet, me at the 40, meet us at the 45 King house. Um, on um, on um, 43rd and the West End Highway by the diner. He said, oh, he'll be at that apartment. He said, I said, yes. So, you know, I said, and I told Mark, I said, Mark, um, um, Hank Shockley, you know, if y'all don't know who Hank is, Bomb Squad, pub, Public Enemy, okay, um, producer. So, you know, he get the limousine, you know, we go to Clark Kent's Club on the West End Highway. It's a line all the way down the street, but the, um, the limousine pulls up to the golden, you know, red rope. We get out. We walking in the club. Club is packed, right? And this is something you would see out of a movie. It almost feel like that belly scene in the movie. And I'm coming in there, and you know, everybody, oh, Mark, uh, Hank, Mark, Hank. You know what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden, I'm hearing, "Do you want a soul clap?" You know, the soul clap, uh, Showbiz and AG record. And then they mixing that record with a uh, Papa Large. Um, Ultramagnetic, you know, ultramagnetic MCs. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing a doom, doom, doom coming in. I'm like, wait a minute, that sounds like deep cover. And oh my God, Clark Kent is mixing deep cover, Papa Large, and Soul Clap in the most amazing mix you would ever want to hear. And when the deep cover song came on, the New York niggas lost their goddamn mind. Knew everything. Then all of a sudden, um, Clark Kent sees us. He saw myself. He sees Hank. He sees the 45 King. So he grabs the mic. He said, Oh, snap. Doug Young is in here from the West Coast. The promoter who dropped off Deep Cover. And then he just started fucking that Deep Cover mixed up. And Nicholas was in there. I mean, they lost it. So I'm like, What the fuck? And then, like, after that, I get a call from friends in Europe that I, because I dropped it all off in Europe the same way, just dumped a bunch of stuff, right? So that Sunday, when I'm leaving New York, and early in that morning, before I usually would just go straight home, right, I go 
to the solar building. Snoop and all of them is in there. And I said, guys, you guys wouldn't believe this, man. I said, that that deep cover record them blew up on the East Coast. Nigga, you lying. Because we ain't have it like you have it now. You know, we get stuff instantaneously. Back then, remember when this, it would take stuff maybe a couple of years to make it from New York to California. Right. You see what I'm saying? So you didn't get the word, what was going on, right? I said, dude, I'm not fucking lying. That record is exploding out there, okay? Because then I then I I, I hear it when we leave the club late that night on on, on Bob Beto's damn show, and you know what I'm saying? I'm like, wow, you see what I'm saying? So I tells them they think I'm lying. I said, you'll see, and you motherfucker pointed over at Snoop, your little tall skinny ass about to be so large, it's ridiculous. Because people like, you know that little, you know Snoop? I said, yeah, I know him. He said, man, how that dude rap like that? I mean, all the New York cats was just asking me about him and where's he from. He's from Long Beach. He said, but how did he how did he create that that almost singing rap, slick, smooth type style? I said, I don't know. You got to ask his ass that. Um, and um, so as I'm telling Snoop them this that Sunday, he think I'm lying. He think I'm lying. So lo and behold, Snoop them. Because right across the street from Solar was um we ate we ate at two places during that time at the Solar building. We ate either at that um Popeye's chicken on Hollywood Boulevard in Kawanga, or we ate at that old nasty Jack in the Box across the street. That's when Jack in the Box was mad food was nasty, but it was the only thing you can really eat. So, you know, as like they say, they smoked a lot of chronic during that album. So him, Snoop, Daz, and Corrupt go across to grab, you know, tacos because, you know, people didn't have a lot of money back then. Uh, they didn't, at least. And um, and as they crossing back over the street, they run into um, Fife and uh, Q-Tip from Tribe Called Quest. And they wanted to take a picture with Snoop. And as I'm watching this, I started cracking up, and I looked at Snoop. I said, I told you. He said, for real? I said, dude, I'm not lying. He said, damn, me and Drake can't stand that record. I said, I know. I said, I just went and dumped that stuff out there. Look what happened. Because, see, that, like they say in anything in life, 99% is just showing up, bro. Just go and just show up. Dude, just just leave it there. I mean, because now you got to remember, from me being able to go to the 45 King house, I got all the top DJs in New York coming to that house. So I'm not giving them a dime to play it. They either going to play that record because they like the record. That's it. I don't. I didn't do payola. I never did payola. If you, ain't, you don't want to play this record because you don't like it, oh, well, fuck that record. That's what happened. Well, uh, was it a, a was it a early version of the chronic that was floating around before the official release? Yeah, it was tons of them because what uh, was tons of them had to do some. I had I had to keep. I called that the keep this record in the air theory. What happened was, as we all know, um, because of the way that Dre left Ruthless, you know, it was hard to to really have Sony all the way in, and then also at this time starting to kind of it's starting to kind of get out that 
you know, there's some shenanigans going on there with the danger part. And then uh, that, that cop killer shit didn't help. Remember the cop killer? So all the labels were scared to mess with records. So the timing was starting to be bad. And then it wasn't no money. And then it was just, it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. So I say, fuck, what are we going to do? Because that that's called, I had theories of all stuff in music. It's called, this shit's about to die on the shelf. You understand what I'm saying? Because if this deal don't happen soon, Dre was done. You know what I'm saying? He was done. Yeah. Because it wasn't, see, a lot of times people don't understand. A lot of that timing stuff got to be perfect, man. Well, I don't give a fuck how dope you are. I don't care how dope the producer is. I don't care how talented the artist is. The artist it is. That's why on some of that stuff, yeah, I love you artists, but y'all get way too much of that credit when everything go right. But you don't give niggas like me shit when it goes wrong. I mean, only till it goes wrong. But right. let them tell a nigga like me didn't do shit. You see what I'm saying? Now think about all this juggling I'm doing for these motherfuckers. You see what I'm saying? Because yeah. they don't really understand the business like I do. And I understand that. Nigga, you're about to be in trouble. I call that dying on the shelf. Uh, I'm just going to avert from what I'm saying for a minute for a group that I love, but they large now, Cypress Hill. They almost died on the shelf. Sony was all in with them, right? But they didn't put me on the project, and I was mad as fuck. They put this dude named Paul Stewart. Paul's my man. He had PMP promotion. I'm just do this real fast and get back to the death row thing. And then they had Karen Mason was the uh, product manager. They was all ready, set, go with the first album, How to, the Killer Man album, right? But I already knew that these idiots is going to come out and promote that shit to the wrong motherfucking people, right? And they did. Because what they didn't realize at that time, people could not stand Be Real's voice, right? And they didn't really get the lingo that they was kicking. So they tried to promote that shit to black people and white people, okay? And it got all kind of critical acclaim for that Cypress Hill album, right? So when Sony did the rollout, Sony went all in. And I think first shelf, first out the bat, um, put 300,000 pieces of product in a store and that shit just sat there and that's called dying on a shelf in the stores right so after a while you got to understand record stores that stuff is like ah I better get rid of this shit before I only get you know when you first buy something if you send it back that first week you can get 80% of your money back this is like a guessing game you got to do but you got to send it back that first week that next Tuesday that stuff got to be back. You get 80% of your money. You don't send it back that next week, then the, the, the percentages of how much money you're going to get back start dropping, meaning that once a record is now in that record store and at whatever point of purchase it at, it's better do something or those record stores are going to move that record. First, they're going to have it out front where you can see it. Then that record ain't doing shit. They're going to get that record out of the way at point of purchase and put a record in that's doing something. So now... You ain't seen in the front of those CD bins or tape bins or it ain't none of the um, the, the wall boardings and the posters up or your stuff. That's now taken down. So people got to go find your stuff, right? So now Cypress Hill is out almost going on two and a half months and it's not doing nothing. And I would always check in with Karen Mason because I knew that that record was dying a horrible goddamn death and they didn't know what they were doing, right? And then she finally calls me one day. She said, oh, my God, Doug, you were so fucking right about this Cypress Hill record. How did you know? What could I say? I said, it's not too late. I said, check this out. 
I'm going to tax your ass, but those are my boys because Cypress Hill, we all was family. Cypress Hill and Low Profile, which was my group, was the Latin Dub C. Dub C be with Cube now. We all made our record in the same apartment, right? And I couldn't see these guys go out like that. I said, how many, how many, um, I said, how many returns is coming back to Sony? She said, Doug, the things is coming like boomerangs and I'm going to lose my job. I said, what, how many? She said, about six. I mean, she said about three 16-wheel trucks load worth of them. I said, what? He said, Doug, this thing is a complete disaster. I said, okay, look, do this. Drill them. Send them all to my address. She said, okay, okay. She said, Doug, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, don't even worry about the money part just right now. Just get that shit. Get them out the warehouse. She said, man, a day and a half later, after me and her having this conversation early that morning, you just heard some doop. I go in front of my house, doo, and then, uh, mind you, I'm living on a court street, right? And it is a 16-wheel truck backing up. Now, mind you, it was two more out there. You understand <laughs> what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, my God. My neighbors is looking at me like, what the fuck is going on here? You understand what I'm saying? And it's everything from that warehouse. So this stuff is now been built up my garage all along the side of my house. Thank God I had a huge backyard. You know what I'm saying? And it wasn't raining. So um, I was like, oh, my God. So it was on. Then um, I had her uh, send some stuff to my brother James Young in the Bay Area, told him what we had to do. Um, So as soon as I got him, I just took off. Took off in my truck, drove all the way to Texas, and just cut back on it. Just only messing with Mexicans, only giving it to Latino people, Mexicans, you know, and Latino culture people, okay? I'm just coming back on that 10, having people uh, delivered to certain hotels I would be at, and I had to have this done like in a week. And then I put in that point of purchase, telling them, put it in front of your counter, I'm not giving them to you for free, but only sell this tape for $5. That was my word to them. I would just keep dropping because I already knew all these people. Just tell me, I'm not giving it to you for free because if you gave it to them for free, people wouldn't open it. If you pay something for it, they're going to open it and see what it sounds like. You see what I'm saying? See how I understand that too. Sometimes if you give somebody something, it's going to turn into either a weed plate or just a coaster for something, okay? Right. They got to pay something for it. They got to give you something for that motherfucker. And I say, just give it to them $5, no taxes and whatever. And I know they're going to have to give me my money back. It was like selling dope now because you're going to call me to re-up. You see what I'm saying? Give me my motherfucking money. You see what I'm saying? And I'll send it to you. And then that's how I was doing it. So I was making money off of what I was doing and giving away posters. I had everything. The Cypress Hill red and white, black and white T-shirts. I had Cypress Hill hat. I had all Cypress Hill was my whole house basically for a while, right? So long story short, and like, Two and a half weeks between me and my brother, my brother going as far as Seattle and me going as far as, because I only wanted to deal with Latinos, okay? I don't know, almost two and a half, three weeks, I get a call from Karen Mason. She said, Doug, Tommy Matola, um, Chris Schwartz is on this call, and they want to thank the hell out of you. And they, and they both asked me, what the fuck did you do? I said, none of y'all goddamn business. What's y'all gift for not putting me on it? They said, Tommy Matola started cracking up. So he said, we got a big-ass check coming to you. You do know that, right? I said, right. And then Chris Schwartz, who was the owner of Rough House Records, 
He was about to put out um, the Fugees. He was about to put out um, Criss Cross. Tommy Matola said, Doug, we sending you everything from now on. All of our urban stuff. You're now on our payroll. Said, thank you. And I hung up on him. Now, back to Dre and that chronic record, right? He was doing the same thing which you were saying about with those versions of all of those songs that we have. So I had to just started making horrible copies of it. And I would make horrible, horrible generation copies of the chronic, right? Just to keep it out there. I would call it keep the balloon up in the air theory, right? And yeah. where you couldn't really, it, it was no real generations on it. It was like third generation stuff. And I would just make a bunch of tapes. And this is when the mic tape people really started coming hard with it. So I would give it to them. I would just throw that shit out there just to keep it up in the air. So I was getting some groundswell because I already knew that uh, Chug was halfway out the door on Dick Griffey ass. I mean, I could see his slickness, you know what I'm saying? So they was running around trying to get it a deal. And I could have got it a deal, but I just started seeing things about Suge that I was like, nah, let me just stay the promoter. You know what I'm saying? Get my little money on that end because I had already really was saying to myself, I, I do these kids because I knew this guy Snoop Dogg was going to be big, right? Yeah. I'm basically going to stop promoting records. You know, that was that would have been my swan song. I did everybody in L.A. from Q to Dub C to Easy, N.W.A., Trade Man, everybody, everybody, everybody in L.A. that was super large. Um, you know, all of them. So, you know, a King T, all of them. I don't care who you are. Uh, Mary, I mean, Compton's most wanted, helped out with Quick, then, you know, uh, tried to get him a deal at Priority Records. Brian told me no. I tried to even get Cypress Hill a deal at Priority Records. Brian told me no. Um, and um, I was just, it was just something about what things was changing. You know, so as y'all know, then Jimmy Iovine, what happened was Dick Griffin him took the take to John McClain. John McClain, so when um so when Jimmy Iveen say that stuff in um the Defiant ones, he's a lying one. Fuck out of here. John McClain is the one who got that chronic record first. Okay? All that shit that he talked about. I just something about you, Dre. I just won't be stuff. Shut up. Be quiet. Okay, stop. Um uh, and um, John McClain wanted to badly. So John McClain talked Jimmy and Ted Fields into doing that deal. Okay? That's what happened. And uh, Jimmy so, then was... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, so Jimmy Iovine didn't want the, the chronic originally? No, he always wanted it. But he didn't get it first, like he claimed. Okay, he did. okay, okay, I got you. John got McClain you. got it. That's how it got in Interscope. You understand what I'm saying? See how he's getting yeah, it. That's out of history. You see what I'm saying? No, that was John McClain. Okay? And then he convinced Interscope to do the deal because remember, Interscope was about to go out of deal because Ted Fields, them family, didn't want to keep pumping money into that company. And did you guys, and I heard just not recently that he's broke now, Ted Fields. For real? Fuck is he? Yeah, I was like, how the fuck is he broke? I Googled it and they said, yeah, he's broke. He's living in some uh, bed and breakfast in Santa Monica 
on Santa Monica. But I can't believe that. White people like that don't be broke. They don't really be as liquid as they used to be. Families like that, you don't go no fucking broke. The Fields family, so I don't know. They say it in, on Google he is, but I don't know how that shit works. And then I don't know how you can still be broke and live on at the beach on, in Santa Monica. That ain't still ain't broke. But that being said, um, and that's what happened, man. And then they that's came cool. in, and uh, and then everybody got to remember too that um, Death Row still didn't make no money at Interscope until the Doggy Style record came out because I still hadn't made a dime until Doggy Style came out. I was still running around there doing most of that stuff for nothing. I had to hold on. But my big payday did come with um when that fucking crime, I mean, um, the dog, Snoop Doggy Dog album came. Oh, my God. And there's another thing. Now, it was always an urban legend floating around on the Internet for a few years that it was a local Snoop Dogg album called Over the Chronic. I mean, Over the Counter, before Doggy Style. Is that rumor true or is it just? Well, I'm quite sure because, remember, they had Actually, those guys did all kind of type of records. Remember, you had two one that Snoop Dogg group and his original group was two one three. That was Warren G, Nate Dogg, and Snoop. Okay, so I'm quite sure they did some music. And then you always had that little the little conflict about how G Funk started. And G Funk started with Above the Law, one eighty seven, the Cats out of Pomona. Let's make that clear, people. One eighty seven. Them started the G-Funk sound. This is what happened. Them cats from Long Beach used to mess with them cats. They used to do stuff together. And as we all know, Warren G is Dre's half-brother, okay? They was out there. They would go out there and mess with Hutch, the homie Hutch and them, cocaine, sugar-free. Those are our Pomona cats out here, right? So a lot of that music, people start hearing your shit and taking, be biting it. You see what I'm saying? Now, did Dre bite the style? Yes. Dre made the style popular. This is where me and uh, my man, and that's my boy. Um, um, man, I can't even think of his name right now. Uh, but anyway, yes, uh, uh, G-Funk came from Hutch. Now, they got into a Hutch named felt some type of way about that, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, they felt that Warren G went took that shit and showed it to them niggas, I mean, showed it to Dre. So for a minute, you know, they was on some, you know, some nigga what's up turns, but, you know, everybody saw love, love now, but, um, that you know, that that's what happened, you know? And of course, and then back to answering your question, yeah, Snoop could have had a whole bunch of stuff out because until an artist and me being it be me dealing with artists for so long and for so many years until an artist is on they have absolutely no loyalty trust me they gives a fuck whatever the first thing that cracks that breaks that's who they rolling with and everybody always say well artists is tripping and they doing this slave this and slave that and slave this let me tell you something about a broke person okay there is no way in the world you're going to tell a broke motherfucker to not go do them slave record deals because they're going to do them each and every time, okay? I don't care how much of this or that, you know, uh, knowledge you try to drop and talk to them and tell them that's the white man taking your intellectual mind properties. 
If that motherfucker got two dollars, and then somebody say I'm gonna give you two hundred fifty thousand dollars, what do you think they're gonna do? Okay. Okay. They're gonna sign that motherfucking deal. They're gonna throw you under the bus like I've done, been got done a bunch of times by them, and that's that's what it is. I don't care. Okay. You can't act a person that's broke to stay broke. It, it just it, it it never works. And then of course, then guess what happens? They're gonna get mad when they sign that slave deal. You understand what I'm saying? And start realizing, and then that's when it's going to be all your fault, that you had them sign that deal, and I didn't know this, and I didn't know that, and I didn't know I was getting charged 30%, and I never really going to ever, 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 ever break even, and three points is only really three pennies, and when Hammer was talked about being the most person who got, got the most percentage of ever in a contract was 25 points, he was bragging, calling it 25 points, remember? Nigga, that was 25 cents. Okay, so if you run around here with a super entourage like that and you getting 25 cents, and remember, that's with if a person was being nice with their accounting, they can play all types of games as we know the record companies do. Whoever's the hottest artist on that label at that time will get billed everything that comes into that building. Y'all got it? I don't care from what phone call to what publicists are doing, they all going to be so called helping you. They all was out there doing work for you. Trust me, that's how it works. Well, uh, one of the biggest issues with Death Row is that they had players and such working out. So did you personally encounter any incidents there? No, no, say that again. Say that again, I didn't hear the question. Yeah, one of the biggest issues with Death Row is that they had Bloods and Crips working there. So did you personally encounter any incidents while you was there? Hell yeah, counting in some incidents. The Crip side was my office. You had a blood side, you had a Crip side. The blood side was like Lip Dog, Heron, Nate Bone, I mean, uh, Neck Bone, Lip Dog, Heron, Neck Bone, uh, Bunchy. Um, and then, no, we had three sides. We We had three sides to death row, okay? Yeah. We had three sides to death row. And then we had the LAPD and the sheriff's side. They was behind the wall. Damn. Oh, no, it was no, it was deep. And then that shit, you know, like when you come into death row, right, you had like um, you, when you first walk in the office, you had all the bloods in there. They was like, you know, niggas fresh out the pen, sitting on like they sitting on a stoop, you know, smoking camels. And uh, Newports, you know what I'm saying? Um, and blood and this and man, when I see blood, I'm gonna get blood. I mean, and all these niggas look like they would make a football team scared of. I mean, they all like shook size, sitting on swole. You know, you know what it used to remind me of when we would be mobbing in certain places, right? Um, and we'd be deep. Um, it'd be like about forty, forty, fifty of us. Right, and remember, all these niggas are shug sides, look like a football team. Ain't nobody smiling. Remember, like the cowboy days when you see them posses and when they be running, but these is niggas walking. Like the movement was just so you had to see it just to understand. And these niggas is all trying to flex their arms, and ain't nobody smiling. And you can see niggas got guns on them, and they were just places would just part like the like the sea. When we would when we would show up, you can see some scary niggas running and 
niggas hitting side doors, and then it got horrible. And, um, you know, that's when I was starting to really get sad in the business. And people that I had been knowing from New York or other places for years, they didn't want to talk to us, and they would be too scared to come around us because niggas be robbing them, beating them up. And it was just, it was, it was what you heard. It was the truth. I mean, it was a gang of fights in that motherfucker. Okay. And then, like y'all heard of me say on the uh, Welcome to Death Row, that was the infamous door locking. Niggas locked that motherfucking door and No, nigga, ain't no nigga never put no hands on me in that bitch, nigga. No, nigga. First of all, too quick on my toes, wasn't getting tricked for nothing. And then I wasn't doing shit except, you know, putting in work, do what I do and get ghosts. That's why I was barely... Even up there, Kevin Black was my assistant at that time. So I made him do all that office shit. You know what I'm saying? So I had a huge office. And then, like, like across from my office, this was like the dump death row. These were the five original workers. You had Roy Testerson. He was the reception person. We had Sharita, which was Suge Knight's wife. We had Kim, my homegirl, Kim. She was an executive, really good executive. I think she's over at Sony Pictures right now. We had Kevin Black, we had myself, and Suge Knight. That was the original executive at Death Row Records. This is, so anybody after that, you know, of course, a lot of people came later when the officers got the red carpet and all the little pretty plaques. So this one, the office looked like a disgusting dump. It was nothing. It was disgusting. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, absolutely disgusting. And um, so... When you would walk in, Roy would be right there, boom, right off to your right, right? And then Suge door was still where you would see it be right in front of you. And then just off a little scoop, scoop, scoop to the right, the first office, that would be Sharita's office, Suge's wife. So basically her office is next to her husband's office. Then next to Sharita's office up against that wall is Kim's office in the corner. Now, I got this whole big square as I had to bust that right I'm going to be on the right-hand side. Sharita is adjacent from me, and Kim's office is adjacent from me, and Suge's office is adjacent from me. When you go in my office, when none but motherfucking Crips in there. You see what I'm saying? Until I kick their motherfucking asses out when me and Kevin had to do some work, okay? Then, as you would come into that door, because, you know, this is the space Interscope gave us. Interscope, across, you know, across the hall. And um, now behind these, it was weird. Behind these walls, there's a gang of sheriff and police there that work for us. Compton sheriff, L.A. sheriff, um, police, you know what I'm saying? A gang of LAPD motherfuckers up there. So every now and then, you would have sergeants and captains coming in there looking for them motherfuckers. And them niggas would scatter down the back stairs, right? And, um, um, and that's what it was at first. Yeah. Um. Now back to the to the dog star album. The anticipation for that album was crazy. I remember it was pushed back and then it was pushed up. Yeah, so, because uh, I yeah because um we just they they just wanted to just let it all build and we had to all get on the same page and and um. I don't know. It was it, that was a weird time. Um, it was the most I've never seen nothing like it. That anticipation ever in life. It was really stressful for me. Cause I hadn't gotten paid a dime from nobody, and um, um, 
you know, it, it was just it was a real stressful time. I couldn't wait until it was over. When it was over, it was like the biggest sigh of relief ever. It was just like it was it was crazy. And then I remember when we had the the, the boat party. I, I I always thought that that was a bad idea at the marina to have that boat party, and I proved to be right. Um, it was just. It was, I I can't even explain to you. I mean, because, like, you know, the planning of it, and then we, uh, I was so glad that me and Kevin Black was getting, we was going to be the first out the gate. You know what I'm saying? Um, We did the party, and then that next day, me and him took off to the East Coast, and we was going to make our way back all the way to California, you know, as we was, um, doing the promotion and it was amazing man we was just i mean in every city yo um if we got like just regular rooms people gave us president suite upgrade you see what i'm saying for the same price um it was it was it was crazy and i mean i made so much money off that doggy style record it was ridiculous I always had a way of getting my money, and then the deal that I cut with Steve Berman because Steve Berman, because I knew what Suge was like, right? So I wasn't fucking with Death Row. You ain't giving me a crumb of my money. So, and I told Jimmy that I said the only way I'm, I'm gonna take this project because Step Johnson, once Step Johnson found out I was rolling with um, Death Row, Step Johnson was at ease because remember Step Johnson is the person who I upset up rap departments with at Capitol Records. So he already knew my background, right? Um, he was like, if Doug Young is doing it, we have nothing to worry about giving Duane whatever he say and get the fuck out of his way. And then um, I remember Jimmy Iovine saying, okay. Yeah, he said, he said, I've never heard one person have no bad words for you. Everybody speaks highly of you. I said, yeah, I just want to let you know straight up, straight out, Suge is not paying me. Interscope is family. So what he said was, and I said, I know you're going to be a busy man, so you need to give me somebody I can come and talk to about my money and just come whenever I need to talk. So he put me with Steve Berman over there. So me and Steve Berman became cool. So the days that I didn't want to deal with a lot of that nigga shit on the death row side of of things, I was just going to uh, Steve Berman's office and go to sleep. Ain't like I was in there working for doing something. I wasn't in there doing shit but going to sleep. Um, go out, show my face. Uh, some days she'll be talking about I can't leave till 6, 7. When he get there, we having a night meeting. And I'd be like, I already know he ain't going to come. And he say 6 or 7. I'll stay from 6 o'clock to 7 oh fucking one, and then I leave. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> fuck you. You don't come, fuck you. You understand? And everybody, <laughs> it was a trip. A lot of bloods would be like, yeah, why you let this old skinny nigga always just do what he wants and say what he want to say? You say, nigga, that dude, yeah, you know, nigga, know what he doing? And um, and um, I just I just didn't do the groupy shit, but like y'all said, as far as niggas getting their ass beat, man, uh, nigga, gang of motherfuckers got beat up, gang of them. And then if you were doing nothing, you think about it now, if you only got beat up, you was lucky, still alive, right? So whoa. So what made you finally decide to leave Delph Row? 
Oh, the uh, shoot, uh, getting shot at three times at that last freak nick in Atlanta in 94 or something like that. Remember that one? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that one that, that was like, it was like, I don't know if it was, but it felt like it was two million black motherfucking people in Atlanta that weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Where, well, having a car that weekend was a waste of time. <laughs> Because you you're gonna be able to walk faster than you can get anywhere in the car. <laughs> that was the most craziest. That was the most craziest weekend ever. Ever. You got shot at twice in Nike Town, and then at that park, and that was scary. And then just it was like, it was like every. Every time Death Row niggas showed up somewhere, niggas wanted to see if niggas was really that bad as niggas saying that they were. Niggas got tested at every turn. And I was done, man. I was done. Um, um, the Above the Rim, you know, we was there promoting that. That's all that banged there. at the. I was standing at the Ritz right across the street from Nike Town. I can look right across the street and boom. I was up in the top president suites up there. Uh, with a do not disturb on my phone. I had a fake name because everybody be looking for us. I already knew all that shit. I had two cars. I had the uh, I had a I had a Jaguar. And it was just all the shit, man. I was like, man, I can't do this no more. And then now you gotta remember this 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 East Coast West Coast shit is kind of only cracking now, in a real way. You see what I'm saying? But Jake then got killed at motherfucking Jermaine Dupree's party. So I knew it wasn't going to be no turning that shit back. And then the word was getting out that, you know, we about to scoop, scoop Pac up and get him out of jail. And I already knew it was going to go way up then. Because you got to remember also that I promoted the first three Pac albums. His first three albums, the last one I did for Pac was uh, Me Against the World. I never worked under the Tupac product at Death Row because I'm going to be up out of there uh, maybe a month and a half, two months before he get there. Just made my exit plan from that freaknik. I remember um, oversleeping because they was calling me um, uh, Faye Dubonnet and Kevin Black. It's like, man, why did, you know, to get to the airport, then I remember putting that do not disturb on everything, the door and the phone. So I wake up and I was like, oh, no. The, lim- the, the limousine had left, right, to the airport. And then I looked and saw that my ass had about 25 minutes to get to that airport. Now, mind you, there is two, and I'm, and I'm not lying, everybody now is trying to leave Atlanta from the freak Nick that morning. And you basically in a parking lot, shit. I got this cab driver. I said, check this out, dude. You get me to the airport in time to catch my flight. Because remember, once you go to that in Atlanta airport, you got to be in them little shuttle light cars, like little train cars, you know what I'm saying? So you got to go. Um, so, man, you get me to the airport, dude. I'll give you this $400, I promise. If you don't, you're just going to get your damn cab back. He said, for real. I said, I'll give you half up front to show you I'm not playing. And then um, he said, you will be there. I gave that motherfucker that $200 up front. He took, he rolled in the, you know, them, them, that, that, that lane you're <laughs> to me. 
<laughs> he said, I'm going to go for it with this ticket. He said, but if we get pulled over, you play like you having a hernia or a heart attack, okay? I said, okay. So, man, that motherfucker got me to the airport like it ain't nothing. Then I got lucky and got one of them shovel shuttles, and then um was already checked in, right? So um, um, as I'm sprinting, like O.J. Simpson, I'm smart enough to only have how to how to um, only have one bag, right? Um, I'm sprinting through the airport. I'm sprinting through the airport. I'm sprinting. I'm sprinting. I'm sprinting. I'm sprinting. I'm sprinting. And then as they was closing the airport door, nigga, I slid my little narrow razor blade ass on the side of that door and spit around like Michael Jackson. It looked like because of uh, uh, Fade and uh, Kevin Black, is, we all we always sit in first class, right? They sitting up front. I said, hello. Thought I wasn't going to make it, didn't you? Everybody in the first class row started cracking up, right? <laughs> so um, <laughs> as I sat down, you know, and did all of that stuff, um, I just turned to a fade and um, Kevin and said, man, I'm quitting death row. And Kevin Black started laughing, right? Said, ah, you Kevin Black talking like that. I called him the cordless mic. At that deep voice, like, you ain't quitting shit. He said, why would you quit now? Look at all this money we making. I said, it's perfect time to quit. Think about it. And then Kevin looks at me, and he see I wasn't playing. Because I wasn't. He was right. Remember, above the rim, Jeff Rose balling out of fucking control at this point. Remember? I said, it's perfect. Yep. I said, look, we about to do the murder of the case. I said, y'all don't you think I'm playing. I'm not fucking with Death Row no more. I said, but look, this is what I need you two guys to do for me. Don't say shit. Don't say nothing. Don't, don't, you bet not tell. And because Fade's on the Interscope side, right? He's, he's in charge of rap for Interscope. So I told him, do not tell Jimmy Iovine. Do not tell Steve Berman shit. Okay? We're going to go along as, as is, and they're going to keep paying me until they figure out I'm not there no more. But I told him, check this out. They're not going to never notice until the, I told him how long it's going to take for them to notice. It's going to take probably close to a year for Suge to notice it. Like, where the fuck is Doug? I told him everything was going to happen. I was dead right, right? I kept getting paid. I got paid for murder was the, I got paid for murder was the case, but I didn't take nothing on those on that two on. Um, um, I think the dog pound came out oh, okay. next. I didn't take no money on that. I, I just took the product. I didn't take no money though. You see what I'm saying? Um, I promoted the product. I promoted Murder Was the Case. I took money on Murder Was the Case. I ain't going in front because that was right after Above the Rim, right? And then I was kind of hanging out. I went over there to the set, but I wasn't working there no more. I went where we shot all of that stuff at, which was right across the street from Capitol on Vine. So they saw my faces, so they didn't know it. I was over there with Silk. He was one of the actors in Murder Was the Case. I've been knowing Silk back to back in the day, the actor Silk. Um, so we was all hanging out. So they I noticed they wouldn't be able to tell. I'd already had all this stuff plotted out in my mind, right? They ain't going to be able to notice it. I say, but one day I told uh, Kev Black, she was going to come ask you and say, where Doug Young at? Tell him something happened in my family and he quit. And that just what happened. So one day I get a call at home from Kevin Black cracking up. Look at you and ride, nigga. I say, right about what? <laughs> he said, sure, just don't. <laughs> you left. 
<laughs> I told him what you said. He said, oh, okay. He said, then he said, he came back. He, everything okay? I said, I guess now, but he said, it happened a minute ago. He said, okay. Well, you know, if he want to come back, just tell him he can come back. And that was the end of that. I just faded to black. Did you know about Easy and Dr. Dre getting back together to reunite for your yep. NWA? Yep. Talk to Easy. I stayed in contact with Easy all the time. I talked to Easy when him and Q, he talked to Q about it. Uh, Easy called me when he was out there when he caught the real bad cold. Um, Easy called me when he was out there doing the Howard Stern show. Um, I was at home. That's when that, that thing started kicking in, that cold. He wasn't nowhere near about to die yet. but uh, um, And it was the weirdest thing because this is before I'm about to get a divorce around this time, right? Um, I'm living in Hollywood, really, on Martell and off Melrose, but I still have my house. My wife and kids have moved out to her dad's house. They read the, we, our divorce is almost about to be final. But anyway, one day I'm at home early in the morning, and at first, I saw a New York number, right? I thought oh, this must be my sister, Siobhan, who lives in New York. So I'm talking to my sister, Siobhan, saying, yeah, what's up, girl? And do blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, talking to easy. And I'm like, what the fuck has happened with this call? I thought calls had just blended or something. So this motherfucker starts laughing. He said, man, I'm walking down. He was like, Doug, I'm walking down. Um, Seventh Ave or something, right? And I see this girl that looked like a girl you. And I just had to ask her, Doug Young, your brother? She said, yeah, that's my little brother. He said, but she's a real pretty, a pretty averse. She looks like a model. I said, yeah, that's why she's in New York. She's a model. She's tall, and I'm tall. I'm six, three and a half. And my sister's like 5'11"-ish, you know, real skinny, skinny, stick, bony, you know. And she had been modeling in New York for years. And after you get old as a model in New York, uh, she she would just uh, well, she worked at fashion houses. She wasn't doing runway shows or any um, cover magazine stuff, but she still made a really nice, decent living. And what that is is uh, when designers have new uh, products that they want to show off to buyers, they need models in there to show it off. So that's how she was making her living. So she was still doing pretty good in that world. Uh, still had her nice apartment in Columbus Circle and all of that. And they somehow ran into each other. That was the weirdest thing in the world, though. Um, and then I asked him, uh, what are we doing in New York? He said, I'm about to do an interview on the Howard Stern show. And um, um, he said, Cuba's out here. And uh, he said, me and Cuba won't get together um, um, Tonight, uh, something at uh, at um at the at the club, the tunnel out there, or something, something to that degree. So ended up he called me when he was ending up coming home, and that's when I first started hearing him cough. And um, so he told me, yeah, me and Q talk, we are gonna get all back together. And then that's when um I heard uh, when he came back from the Howard Stern show that um he had fired Jerry Heller. And then I would see him at Jonathan Clark's office. Jonathan Clark was a guy who uh, had a printing company in uh, Culver City, um, like right in the back of me. I live in Ladera now. I used to live in Beverly Hills now. 
I came back from the Bay Area after my mom died a, a year and some ago. I moved over here to Ladera area, really nice area. A lot of upper, way, way upper middle class black people live. Um, Windsor Hills, uh, Baldwin Hills. I live in that little area now. Um, and and Jonathan, he had a shop like right in the back. It's, I can, it's like Culver City is the next city over from where I'm at. Okay. And Easy would always be there, but I was just thinking it because it was this old big booty girl that worked for um for um Jonathan. But he was messing around with her and um so me and him became real close again at this now at this time. Uh, I'm not I'm not at death row no more. Um matter of fact I gotta uh, back the story up. Uh once I quit death row, I called Jerry and I called Easy and asked for my job back. They said sure. They gave it right back to me at Ruthless. Um, and then um, and then I, after a while, I started noticing when I got back with him, um, he was always by himself. He would always be by my house. I had a, um, a fly-ass apartment on Martell in the Melrose District when the Melrose was cracking in the 90s out here in, in Cali, in L.A. And um, I had an office over there, too, uh, which would be a little bit later. Right after Easy died, I got the office because, um, you know, that was over with, you know, so I just started my own thing. But long story short, I was still doing my thing for other companies like Easy knew I would be, uh, promoting for them and consulting and doing all kind of stuff. And now I'm, 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 I'm pretty well known all over the world, so I'm still traveling a lot. So um, I was... Um, messing around with this girl named Tonya that I brought over. She was a supermodel from Denmark. And um, uh, we had our, that apartment together. But she was always gone, too, because she was a model. And then she was a backup dancer with Mary J. Blige. And then she got into the ultimate clique of um, choreographers, which was Fatima Robinson and Big Legs and all of them. And all of them became Thick as Thieves and uh, Lori Earl out of New York. So our house became a hub. You know, everybody was over there. You know, the young groups, people, unknown groups like 112, she done a lot of stuff with Puffy and and uh, Genuine before people knew, knew Genuine and, and all of that Aaliyah because Aaliyah was, uh, uh, Fatima was doing all of her choreography. So, and I would always be gone, right? Uh, me and Tony, uh, then me and Tonya had an apartment in New York too. Uh, on the east side, so Easy knew how to get into my apartment, right? I told him, like, look, if I'm not here, I'm gonna show you how you get in here, all right? Because I lived on the first level, and um, so when I would come back, and the, the super shuttles would drop me off, or limousines, or however I would get home, I drove my car and parked it in an overnight lot at LAX. Um, I would come back home and I would see Easy Six Four in front of my house. Said, Man, Easy over here. So I get in the house and he would just be there asleep. He'd be asleep. So you know, um, and at this time, me and Tonya gets married because of immigration reasons. Because um, she was scared that she was going to get kicked out of the country. So we would have to go to. Um, our immigration's attorney, which was in Encino, California. So after a while, I didn't see Easy because I was at home a lot, but I didn't see him. And then one day, 
Antonio had to be at there, be there for us. They used to call these things advanced paroles for um, her to uh, stay in the country, you know, get a green a green card and an advanced parole, right? So I see easy. I mean, no, what happened was Tonya saw easy. I thought she was crazy. Somebody comes zooming past us on uh, Ventura um, and almost like they was trying to hit us. And then so me and her run across the street real fast, right? That's that motherfucking then and then Tony said, that, that was easy. That's how Tony talk. Uh that was easy. Oh no damn easy. She said that was fucking easy, though. That was easy easy. I said, hey, he don't have no black Jeep. But lo and behold, uh, as soon as we took care of the, the stuff with the immigration attorney, got her advanced parole, she was calmed down, um, and she was in the country. Okay. Um we go to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. Uh, in Hollywood on Gower. And um, and then Tonya said, that go that fucking black sheep. And I bet you when we get into, she told, I bet you when we get into Roscoe, Easy's going to be sitting his black ass in there. He walks into Roscoe and sure me home. Easy is sitting right there laughing like a motherfucker. Say, Easy, that was you, huh? He said, yeah. So we chopping it up. Um, we chopping it up. I think we went there to meet with um, Tyra Banks and her mom because Tyra Banks used to just love looking at Tonya in her face and just constantly sitting there gawking over talking about how beautiful she was. And her mom said, she knows she's beautiful. Tyra, will you stop telling that girl that? But Tonya, I mean, you know, dad was black, her mom was white. But when I say this girl is gorgeous, she's ridiculously gorgeous. Um, so we chop it up, you know, because we was there to have um, a late breakfast slash brunch because we would always eat with those two Tyra Banks and her mom. Let's be this is before Tyra Banks blew up. Um she was still modeling. She was kinda getting a name for herself, but nobody really knew her. But she used to love my wife. Oh my God. And um her mother, how Tyra Banks got her book, uh, her mom, she she like the person that takes the coroner pictures the city of LA so when a person dies she's the lady that takes the picture that's how she was and she's an incredible photographer um, we used to go over to their house but um, anyway I'm saying that to say after that Easy comes over our house I said Easy meet, her, meet, 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 meet us at the house later on so he comes over to the house uh, we smoking weed and he's coughing really bad now Easy is right I'm like dude what's wrong with you and he was like, I don't know, man. Like, I can't shake this and blah, blah, blah. So then, you know, I'm paying no mind. And um, so then um, I go with Phyllis Pollock House. Remember, I'm telling you about the crazy uh, publicist lady. So easy to hire, rehire all of his old people that really helped him do what he did. So he rehires her. And I'm over Phyllis Pollock House for something else or something. I don't know. And now Easy's there getting interviewed by her. You know what I'm saying? For her press release on it, for his new stuff. And this one he was doing this the the uh, BG knockouts and all of that stuff and uh and then I was the one that said it easy. What about if he shot and I shot, man, when you gonna come back and say something to Dre and Snoop, man, you can't just let them niggas diss you like that. So he definitely um made his record, right? Um But now he's really coughing horribly bad. But you know some guys I'm I'm gonna wrap this interview up. 
uh, right now. Cause I think I can get y'all two nice hours. And uh, that's uh, the, the 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 thing that um he did, you know that um that that's the thing that he did um to um just um you know. Oh, yeah, we we still have some know, questions was, if you just wanted to go through. What's that? I said we we still have some questions if you had wanted to go through. No, actually, I gotta actually get ready to go do something uh four thirty um but um um maybe we can finish this on another day, but um you know um but yeah, I mean yeah, yeah we'd love we'd love me, to me, have me sitting there talking about that easy yeah. me sitting there talking about that easy stuff and got me really sad to be honest with you um and then um after that after me that was the last time I saw easy was at Phyllis Poly couch um then um I saw it on the news when they were saying that he was in the hospital. So then I raced over to Cedar Sinai and somehow I snuck in there with MC Hammer and them and um snuck in Cedar Sinai. Um I saw the Nation of Islam and then I saw Jason Winborn, the guy I was telling you about the supersonic and they had the club. He was now Tamika Easy's wife, personal assistant like he did all the running errands for her at a big position at ruthless records at that time so then he snuck me in to see easy and I, his hair was all disheveled and his eyes was yellow and it just didn't look good he was on them breathing machines and and um it was horrible 